It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello, everybody. It's Robert Polly here with the 7th Avenue Project. Welcome to the show. Today, Mysteries of the Universe, not exactly solved, but at least explained or described by one who knows them well. That is the astrophysicist Michael Turner. He's a professor at the University of Chicago and director of the Kavli Institute for Cosmological Physics, also in Chicago. And he's considered one of the leading thinkers on some of the biggest questions in cosmology, that is, the origin and structure and evolution of the cosmos. We're going to be discussing a number of those questions today, including the problems of dark matter and dark energy, those two mystery meats that are now believed to make up the bulk of the universe, even if we can't see them. Michael Turner has made major contributions to our understanding of both those problems and also to the scientific language we use to describe them, as we're going to hear. I spoke to Michael Turner uh, prior to a lecture he was giving called Before the Big Bang, which might sound kind of nonsensical to ask what came before the beginning, but as Michael Turner explained, it may not be such an absurd question to contemplate after all. Here's my conversation with Michael Turner. Michael, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. I'm happy to do so. I have heard that you have a gift for naming uh, scientific concepts. Um, that might be true. <laughs> well, you are purportedly the person responsible for the uh, acronym WIMP, meaning Weakly Interacting Massive Particle. Indeed, that's true. That's a hypothetical uh, type of particle believed to be um, the, the constituent of what's called dark matter. That's right. Um, how did you come up with the name WIMP? Well, you know, naming things is important so that you, uh, you know, don't have to say, oh, that new particle that comprises the dark matter. <laughs> and, of course, you know, uh, what we do is really, really fun, so whimsical is okay. And I saw somewhere, someone was calling it the weakly interacting particle. And I thought, gee, why not just slide an M in there and it could be a wimp? <laughs> And uh, now the problem with naming things is you don't always get to set the rules. So uh, uh, the name caught on, and other people decided that WIMP only refers to dark matter candidates that uh, are heavier than the proton, that it doesn't refer to the axion or a neutrino, uh, which I disagree with. But unfortunately, you know, uh, when you invent something, that doesn't mean you get to control it forever. Mm. So, so the WIMP really refers to the thing that we hope to find in the next few years at the Large Hadron Collider or uh, in one of the uh, direct detection experiments. And uh, so, in fact, people are calling this the decade of the WIMP. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it may be. Um, just to give uh, listeners a little background, we've talked about dark matter uh, on my show in the past, but just a little recap. This is the invisible matter that uh, is now strongly believed to make up the majority of the mass in galaxies, and it's a good part of what holds galaxies together, right? Yeah, indeed, and it's a wonderful detective story because it started in the 30s with Fritz Zwicky, who named it, and uh, he realized that in clusters of galaxies, uh, the gravity of the stars was not uh, sufficient to hold the galaxies together. And uh, not very many people have paid attention to it, partly because of uh, his personality and partly cosmology was young and there were lots of puzzles. And over the years, the puzzle has sharpened. And uh, where we stand today is very, very exciting. We know how much dark matter there is in the universe. Um, it's about uh, 27%, actually closer to 28% of the total amount of stuff in the universe. And we know how many atoms there are in the universe, and they count for about 4.5%. And so you look at those numbers, and uh, we're quite confident of those numbers. And what it says is that the dark matter cannot be composed of atoms, and it has to be something new. So, uh, you know, like a good detective, uh, we've eliminated the impossible, 
And so we're left with this very improbable idea that dark matter is a new form of matter. And today, that's the most conservative hypothesis. And that's what we're pursuing, and that's pretty exciting. That would mean that astronomers and cosmologists discovered a new particle of nature before the uh, particle physicists did. <laughs> um, just to clarify, uh, when you say that 4% is atoms, you mean what's called ordinary matter, uh, the kind of matter that we're used to uh, that makes up us and makes up planets and asteroids and stars and interstellar gas. And all the stuff we used to think what made up the majority of the universe is just actually 4% of yeah. the total. And then there's this other type of matter, this mysterious dark matter, uh, made up, we believe, of WIMPs, weakly interacting massive particles. The estimate is now uh, at, at something like 28% of the total mass of the universe. Um, first of all, how do, you, how do you get to those numbers? The universe is an awfully big place. How the heck do we know that 4% of it is ordinary matter and 28% is dark matter? Yeah, so that that's one of the great uh, you know stories in cosmology is the universe is big and often beyond the reach of our instruments and even our ideas. And we've reined it in a little bit in the last 20 years. And so with the atoms... We have really three different ways of, of accounting for the ordinary matter. Uh, one involves the fact that when the universe was seconds old, it was a nuclear reactor. And uh, the helium, most of the helium in the universe was made then. And a tiny bit of deuterium was made then, uh, deuterium being heavy hydrogen. And the amount of deuterium that's made is very sensitive to uh, how many uh, atoms there are in the universe. So that gives one number. That gives a 4.5% number. Then it turns out that the cosmic microwave background, which I bet we'll come back to in more detail later, um, uh, those are the microwaves uh, that are the echo of the Big Bang. We study those very carefully, and uh, that gives us an accounting of the uh, matter in the universe when the universe was 400,000 years old. Very, very different physics, and guess what? It gives 4.5%. And then the most difficult method is sort of direct accounting because uh, matter in the universe likes to play hide-and-seek. And so uh, the accounting today, we have to add up what's in stars, and that's not very much. Stars only account for about a half a percent. And then how much is in the form of uh, hot gas and cold gas. And so when we do that accounting, that accounting is uh, less accurate, but it also gives a number uh, right in that 4 to 5% ballpark. So we have three separate accountings that give the same number. And then the dark matter is very, very similar. I, I don't want to go into too much detail, but in the dark matter where we first studied dark matter was the clusters. And uh, there we can get a very good accounting of the amount of dark matter. And then we come back to the microwave background, which also gives us an accounting of, of the amount of matter in the universe when it was only 400,000 years old and uh, when the universe was a very, very simple place. Stars didn't exist, planets didn't exist, galaxies didn't exist. And that also gives a similar number. And so we're quite confident of the of the 28% total amount of matter and the four and a half in ordinary matter, indicating that there must be something else. And it's really taken the last 10 to 20 years to really put together an airtight argument. And so we've worked ourselves into this corner where the most conservative hypothesis is that the bulk of the matter in the universe is a new form of matter. And this is the decade when we like to test it. I think there's a chance that we can verify this hypothesis. Uh, I think that'll be very exciting. And that's within the possibility of uh, doing this decade. Now, now, there are a number of efforts underway to, to find actual WIMPs, you know, these, these particles that may make up uh, dark matter, um, using underground detectors. They're underground to uh, shield against cosmic rays, which would interfere with the detection. And last year, I believe there was a moment when people thought uh, that one of the detectors, one in Italy, had actually picked up some signs of dark matter. Did that not pan out? 
That's right. So we have this, we have actually three different techniques. I like to say we have the full court press. We've got, we're trying to make the dark matter particles at CERN. Uh, we're trying to detect the ones that hold together our own galaxy in these underground experiments that have to be shielded from cosmic rays. And then um, we're also looking for um, uh, annihilations the dark matter particles can uh, meet up, annihilate, and turn into things that are easier to detect. And in two of those three methods, we have uh, hints of signals. And the direct detection, that hint has been around since the uh, mid-1990s. And the evidence has gotten a little stronger because this experiment in Italy called DAMA has seen a hint and now there are other experiments, including my colleague here at the University of Chicago, Juan Collar, uh, has an experiment that sees something similar. And then there's another experiment in Europe that sees something similar. But we um, haven't risen um, to the Sagan level uh, <laughs> of proof. Uh, Carl Sagan used to say that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So we have hints which tell us that our detectors are uh, getting sensitive enough to see a signal. And we'll have to see if, if these hints prove out. Everybody is on what's it called, you know, hair trigger, because uh, we, we know that we're close to solving this. And so the instruments are sensitive enough. And so everybody, you know, uh, when they see a signal, lets everyone else know, hoping that others will come and confirm it. Um, so it's very exciting. And at the end of the decade, it would be terrific if we got a triple signal. We, we make it at uh, the Large Hadron Collider. We see uh, the particles annihilate in the halo, and we directly detect them in these underground detectors. So the champagne is on ice, you're saying. People are all ready for this to happen. Well, scientists are naturally skeptical, and so that's right. We haven't broken out the champagne, but we're also eternal optimists. You know, we we always I'm I'm always accused. I you know I got a, here I have a, a coffee cup on my uh, on my desk here with you know barely uh, barely anything in it, and and I, I constantly see that as being half full. The glass is half full, and and I think this could be the decade, and. It's such a wonderful story, this idea of dark matter. Zwicky was an incredibly creative thinker, and he made lists of what the dark matter could be, and it exceeded his creative mind. Nowhere on his list was a new form of matter. He had things like neutron stars and, and uh, black holes, but he didn't have anything uh, as startling as a new form of matter. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, clever listeners will have noticed that in our calculations earlier of what makes up the mass of the universe, we left a, a rather large amount unaccounted for. I think if 4% is ordinary matter and 28% roughly is dark matter, that leaves about 68%. And I have heard that you not only invented this, this uh, acronym WIMP, but you came up with the, the term for what this missing substance may be, which is dark energy. So dark energy was uh, an even more interesting story. So uh, I'm guilty again there. We In 1998, uh, it was discovered that the universe, instead of slowing down due to gravity, that's what gravity is supposed to do is pull things back together. Um, that's what the dark matter does in galaxies. But the universe as a whole, the expansion is speeding up. It's due to the repulsive gravity of uh, dark energy. And this dark energy, which was completely unknown until 1998, accounts for about 70% of the universe and, uh, you know, kind of finishes the pie. It's the biggest piece of the pie. And of course, this year's Nobel Prize went to the uh, three gentlemen involved in discovering that the universe was speeding up and not slowing down. And just as dark matter may be winding down, the dark energy puzzle is starting up. Uh, we're at the very, very beginning. And like really, really good puzzles, uh, we don't have a clue if we'll solve it in five years, 15 years, or 150 years. And it weighs in on all kinds of issues, you know. Uh, it weighs in on the destiny of the universe. It, it weighs in on uh, superstring theory. It weighs in on uh, 
all kind. We know this is a very important puzzle. It seems to be at the center of a lot of questions we're asking. Is it true, though, that even before that discovery in 1998, that the universe is expanding ever faster, uh, meaning that there must be some form of energy pushing it, uh, that you had run some calculations that pointed to a large amount of unaccounted for energy in the universe? Thank you for reminding me of that. Um, (laughs) Cosmology in the mid-90s was in a little bit of a crisis. We had some very, very powerful ideas that we had borrowed from particle physics about dark matter, which we've talked a little bit about, and inflation that maybe we'll talk about. And these ideas suggested that the universe should have uh, what we call the critical density And a universe with the critical density is a universe that's uncurved. And these were very, very beautiful ideas. And and, and around the 1990s, we were pinning our hopes on there being enough dark matter to fill out the critical density. And we we were having a hard time measuring how much dark matter there was. And by the mid-1990s, we knew how much dark matter there was. And the answer was this number close to 30%. And so we were, uh, you know, we were in trouble. And so, again, going back to Sherlock Holmes, so we've uh, eliminated the impossible. The critical density can't be in dark matter, but we have a really, really good idea. This inflation idea is really, really good. So what can we put it in that would uh, bring the total up to 100% that hasn't already been ruled out? And something like dark energy fit the bill, And so, uh, actually, Lawrence Krauss and I wrote a paper putting uh, all the evidence together, saying, you know, it's not only uh, the desire to get a flat universe, but this solves a whole bunch of other problems. Uh, That was in 1995. And um, so what I like to say is that this uh, discovery that the universe was speeding up was the most anticipated surprise of all time. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure I would go out on a limb and say it was predicted, because, you know, theorists, we did predict it, but we predict a lot of things. It was the missing piece of the puzzle, and what's sort of stunning about this is you go back and look at the data that these two teams presented in 1998, and it did not meet the Sagan standard, not even close. But the sociology... uh, and science involves human beings, so, you know, there is sociology. This crazy fact that the universe was speeding up, absolutely kooky, crazy, uh, bizarre, uh, you look at it, and you say, that's just crazy. And then you go down and look at the puzzle on your table, and that was the missing piece. And that brought everything together. Um, just to reassure your listeners, because science, uh, we are skeptics and, and we do sweat the facts, is that in the 15 years since the discovery, we have filled in the evidence. And uh, so we now have the, sta- the Sagan standard. The universe really is speeding up, and that really is amazing. And I want to remind listeners that this is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and uh, today I'm talking to the astrophysicist Michael Turner of the University of Chicago. We're discussing some of the biggest challenges in our understanding of the cosmos these days, including dark energy. That is the mysterious stuff that is believed to be pushing the universe apart faster and faster. Dark energy was discovered in 1998, and that was a really big deal for astrophysics, But uh, Michael Turner and some other scientists had actually anticipated the discovery by several years. And uh, before we get back to the conversation, I uh, wanted to take a moment to clear up some possible points of confusion. When Michael Turner and I were talking earlier about the various ingredients that are now believed to make up the universe, we got a little loose with the estimates. At one point, Michael seemed to say that 28% of the cosmos is dark matter and that another 4% is ordinary matter made of atoms. And uh, then at another point, he seemed to say that dark matter and ordinary matter together comprise 28% of the universe. So a little inconsistency there. Well, later on, uh, he gave me his more precise take on the cosmic recipe. 4.5% atoms, something like uh, 25% of the universe in uh mysterious dark matter, and something like about 71% uh, in this dark energy. 
So I hope that clears that up. Now back to today's interview with theoretical physicist Michael Turner. You know, in a lot of the accounts uh, that I've heard and read of the discovery of dark energy, they leave that uh, theoretical work that you and Lawrence Krauss did out of the story. Um, I have always heard that in 1998, you know, it was announced that two teams of scientists had discovered that the universe was expanding at a faster rate, uh, an increasingly fast rate, uh, and that blew everybody away, and it was completely unexpected, and it took a while to get used to that idea. Um, but you're saying that some years before, you had, in a way, predicted this by doing some basic math involving the geometry of the universe and the what's what you call the critical density. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about that. You, you say it started with the idea that the universe is flat, and I'd like you to explain that, and then and then tell us why that demands a certain so-called critical density. Yeah. So let, let's start there. So um, one of the most important ideas in cosmology uh, over the past, uh, since the idea of the Big Bang, is inflation, that the universe went through this growth spurt very early on. And um, I was an inflationist early on, really believed in the ideas, helped do some of the uh, early calculations. And so one of the clear predictions of inflation uh, is that the universe is uncurved. This burst of expansion in, in, uh, causes the universe to grow so much in size that any curvature just becomes imperceptible. Mm-hmm. And when we say curvature, we mean space-time curvature. Uh, spatial curvature, actually. Oh, only simplest, spatial. Simplest curvature. And then Einstein's equations say that the curvature of space is related to the amount of uh, matter and energy in the universe. A universe with lots of matter uh, and energy density curves back on itself is positively curved, like the surface of a balloon. And one with not very much energy is negatively curved. And then there's the Goldilocks universe. (laughs) Just right. And so this was such a strong prediction of inflation that, you know, if you believe in inflation, you really have to take this prediction very seriously. So the question was, where is all that critical density? And as I said, for a while, we pinned our hopes on dark matter because it was so diffuse and a good accounting had not been done. But towards the beginning of the 1990s, it was becoming clear that the rising amount of dark matter that people were finding was leveling off at about 30%. And so then you just ask yourself, what what could be out there? And uh, uh, actually, the first paper that Lawrence and I wrote on this was in 1984. So theorists often hedge their bets. There wasn't much collaborating evidence then. And in 1995, we wrote a paper, and also uh, Jerry Ostreicher of Princeton wrote a, a similar paper just after ours, saying, you know, maybe it's a cosmological constant uh, or dark energy. And around 1995, uh, I think in 1996, there was a big meeting in Princeton. I was in a beauty session, beauty meaning how do we save inflation, you know, and there were different versions of inflation, one that abandoned flatnets, one that added uh, Joel Premack of, of uh, UC Santa Cruz had hot dark matter and cold dark matter. And, and the one that really fit the data the best was the one that Lawrence and I and Jerry Ostreicher were pushing. Uh, the hallmark of it would be accelerated expansion. You know, um, I think if you if you read the you know longer articles, our work and that of Jerry Ostreicher and and his collaborator Paul Steinhardt is is mentioned. So I, I'm not complaining uh, too much. And theorists make a lot of predictions, and often uh, you know we, we 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 point to our correct predictions. And uh, you know it was fun to be part of this adventure, and it's quite remarkable. Uh, that it worked out. And I would say the sort of the proof of the pudding of all of this is had it truly been an unexpected discovery, it would not have been uh, accepted so rapidly. Mm. If you look at the, the data they published in 1998, it's not very convincing at all. But it was the missing piece of the puzzle. And then uh, the uh, evidence became firmer and firmer, and, and, and everything came together to this amazing picture of the universe that we have today. Um, so, basically, just to, to recap in very compressed form, you believed in inflation. Uh, inflation predicted a geometrically flat universe, and in order for the universe to be flat, according to the 
equations, Einstein's equations of general relativity, you needed a certain distribution of energy. Density of material. Material, yeah. yeah, energy and matter throughout the universe, even in empty space, even in places where there aren't stars and planets and other stuff, right? Well, it's the average that counts. It's the average. It's the average that counts. And uh, what we knew in terms of putting this together, this puzzle, just saying that there's more matter doesn't work because if it's matter that clumps up, it, we would have already seen it in mm-hmm. the accounting. Mm-hmm. So it had to be something for one reason or another didn't clump up. And, and dark energy or a cosmological constant do, do exactly that. Okay, now let's explain uh, what you mean when you say dark energy or a cosmological constant. So dark energy is simply stuff that has repulsive gravity. Right. So I've used it in the grandest sense. And examples are uh, the energy of the vacuum, the quantum energy of the vacuum. And mathematically, that's the same as Einstein's cosmological constant. Mm-hmm. But the dark energy could be something more bizarre. It could be, uh, my, my friend Paul Steinhardt has called it quintessence, um, which is something more akin to a uh, mini-period of inflation. Um, Or it could be uh, a bunch of uh, topological uh, defects, very elastic things like uh, strings or sheets of energy. Dark energy is meant to be, you know, my definition would be that stuff that has repulsive gravity. It's, it's trying to imitate Fritz Zwicky. So dark matter is that stuff that we can't see. That's why it's called dark and uh, is producing the gravity that holds together clusters. So this is stuff that we can't see, and it's producing the repulsive gravity that's causing the universe to speed up. Right. And it could be this constant energy of empty space, the vacuum energy, in which case the uh, accelerating uh, expansion would continue to accelerate at exactly the rate it's accelerating now. Or it could be some of these other even weirder things that you just named, in which case maybe the rate of acceleration uh, will change. Uh, This is such a fun puzzle because you're absolutely right. Um, The simplest case is is, uh, vacuum energy, and then the universe will just continue to uh, accelerate. Um, But it could be that the speed up is speeding up. (laughs) <laughs> right, <laughs> and or it could be that the speed up is slowing down, and we're we're going to go back to uh, a more uh, you know uh, a more normal uh, expansion that actually slows, and we just honestly don't know, and so that's why uh, a lot of us are devoting time to the next set of measurements, you know. So is the speed up itself speeding up, or is the speed up slowing down? And this is not the first time in the universe's life that it ha- has had weird sort of growth spurts. I mean, you mentioned inflation, cosmic inflation, which hypothetically happened way back, you know, 13.7 billion years ago, in which um, at least the observable universe, that part we know about, expanded, you know, what, many, 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 many times over from fairly small to decent-sized in uh, far less than a second. Right? Right. Uh, so, in fact, what's sort of amusing is when uh, in the 1980s, when we started talking about inflation, we were very careful not to talk about the accelerated expansion because it was already a very big idea. And so we just didn't mention the accelerated expansion. But what's sort of amusing is that now, now that the universe today is undergoing accelerated expansion. It's not such a big, it's not such a heavy lift to talk about uh, accelerated expansion back then. And so when you're early in the puzzle, um, you've got two periods of accelerated expansion. Maybe they're related. Right. That, that was going to be my next question. So we had this growth spurt 13.7 billion years ago. I mean, talk about growth spurt. I mean, it multiplied its size how many times over? Um, it, it grew uh, in size by... Uh, a uh, factor of more than uh, 10 to the 40. 10 to the 40, okay. We're not going to try to even name that number, but it's, yeah, we it's won't a huge name number. That number. But it grew from uh, much smaller than a proton to a size that I've heard estimated uh, at, at, at roughly the dimension of a grapefruit. Um, yeah, that, that's, a good, that's a good analogy. <laughs> and it did that in, in a split second, a, a really tiny fraction of a second. In what, in what we call a jiffy. In a jiffy. And then, and then things continued expanding at a slower rate all these billions of years. But at some point, you guys now estimate that expansion started picking up steam 
and you know became this this accelerating expansion that we now see. When, when was that? When was that second well, kick? Well, we don't know that very well, but roughly speaking, it was four or five billion years ago. So, so like a second kick, you know? Yeah, and so the question is, uh, why now? Yeah, yeah. Why'd you wait so long? <laughs> and uh, is, is this one going to last, uh, you know, 10 to the 40? Because uh, if it does, the universe will be a very lonely place. And we're really, really at the beginning. I mean, just to, you know, just again to go back on this theme about, uh, you know, theorists, uh, we come up with ideas. We make a lot of predictions. Uh, uh, we're kind of like Babe Ruth. We always take big swings. So another idea is there is no dark energy. And uh, there's something wrong with gravity. <laughs> because we, the only evidence we have of the dark energy is the expansion is speeding up. But maybe there's no stuff out there. Maybe we just have the wrong theory of gravity. Maybe uh, we, most of us are fairly confident that Einstein didn't get the last word on gravity. And most of us are pretty confident that there'll be a theory beyond his. And so maybe this is a hint about that theory. And so just to show you how, uh, how we cover our bets, uh, I wrote one of the first papers stating there is no dark energy. Uh, we just have to modify gravity. Interestingly enough, we went down that route for dark matter, and I think we've more or less eliminated the possibility that there is no dark matter and it's just something wrong with gravity. So that was a very popular idea, particularly among astronomers for a number of years, and I think we were able to eliminate that idea. Uh, on, on the accelerated expansion, we're still early on, and people are still pursuing the idea that um, this is really just a manifestation of having the wrong theory of gravity. Um, well, the, the prevailing theory, uh, Einstein's general relativity, has worked out really well at certain scales, but uh, it, it breaks down at very, very small scales, right? Uh, and at high, high, high densities, like the center of black holes. Uh, exactly the opposite of you know, the problem that we have today. Right, right. But it has worked out on large scales, and, and we're talking about large scales here, the expansion of the universe. So how could there be a flaw in general relativity at that scale? Exactly. I think, I think um, that's the problem, is that, in fact, there is no experimental evidence uh, that uh, is at variance with the predictions of Einstein's theory. And as you say, where it works best is at large scales, although our best testing of general relativity is on scales the size of the solar system. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, nature, uh, you know, likes to play with us, and science is a wonderful adventure. Even though you were expecting the signs uh, that point to the next theory of gravity to show up, as you say, at early times and, and very, very short distances, to your surprise, the clue could come on uh, large distances. Now, that being said, this idea that something's wrong with gravity, so far that has not produced pay dirt. Um, when I was a, a student at Caltech, uh, uh, I studied with Feynman. And Richard I, Feynman. I liked mm. a lot, yeah, Richard Feynman. I liked a lot of his analogies. And he was talking about, in theory, you know you've got a good idea uh, when you, like, put a quarter in and $5 comes out. <laughs> you know, so, okay, uh, you know, we're going to change gravity to explain the accelerating universe. And if all that comes out is that you can explain the accelerating universe, that's like putting a quarter in and getting a quarter back. But if it solves some other problems at the same time, then you know you might be on to something. So, in fact, that comes back to 1995 and this idea that there was dark energy. Uh, so it didn't just uh, keep the universe flat. It explained a number of other puzzles. But coming back to the present time, modifying gravity to uh, explain that the universe is speeding up. We put a quarter in, and we, we got about 24 cents back. Uh -huh. But you never know. It's very, very early on, and so it's, it's an exciting time. You know, as a non-physicist, but one who uh, cares about physics and, and studies it as best I can, it strikes me that at every breakthrough, um, major breakthrough, there's a sacred cow that gets sacrificed. So Einstein's breakthrough, general relativity, he had to sacrifice notions of time and space and gravity that people solemnly believed in. I'm wondering, are there any sacred cows you'd be unwilling to sacrifice? Um, you know, let, let me rephrase your question a little bit. So w when we talk about our great successes in cosmology at understanding the universe, some people sort of scratch your head, scratch their heads and say, 
this sounds a whole lot like epicycles. <laughs> you know, so you couldn't figure out what held together clusters or even galaxies, so you invented dark matter. And then you couldn't figure out why the universe was speeding up, so you invented dark energy. And you couldn't figure out where the lumps, the lumpiness that uh, seeded galaxies came from, so you invented inflation. It sounds to me like you guys need to go back to the drawing board. And so it could be that this is the last gasp of, uh, you know, adding all these little uh, kludgy corrections and something big is going to happen, that there'll, there'll be a complete reformulation. Of some major theory like general relativity. Yeah, that may be, uh, I, although I don't, I, you know, when you work so closely to it, uh, dark matter doesn't seem very revolutionary to me. To think that the only particles that live for a long time are made out of quarks doesn't seem so crazy. And dark energy, I mean, it could just be the uh, energy of the vacuum, but there could be something big ahead. And, you know, the way Einstein, when, you know, it's, it's interesting looking back, uh, it's, it's which sacred cow to sacrifice. So Einstein was quite taken by special relativity, and he saw that Newton's theory was not consistent with special relativity. And he said, time to look for a new theory of gravity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty bold. And, of course, we all know it worked out. <laughs> um, I don't know, you know, what would you sacrifice now? The, the, the big problem today is reconciling uh, quantum mechanics and general relativity. That was what you were alluding to before. Mm -hmm. That um, And so which are you going to sacrifice, quantum mechanics or are you going to sacrifice general relativity? Um, and it's always, you know, in retrospect, oh, it was so obvious. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, when you're there, you know, there's a fog of confusion. And actually one of my favorite quotes is that um, – to solve really big problems, you need crazy ideas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I know, your li I know your listeners can get my email address, so I, I also want to point out, <laughs> oh, no. not every crazy idea is a solution to a profound problem. Most of them are just crazy. Oh, my God. I, we could do a whole other interview about some of the alternative theories, shall we say, that you probably had to entertain uh, through your email and uh, phone. And, and it's, you know, we also, I forget who first said this, but uh, it goes back to the 30s. Some physicists said, you know, that idea is just crazy enough to be right. When you're, <laughs> when you're solving big problems, often the solution involves just looking at it a new way. I mean, for example, this did not lead Einstein to general relativity, but probably many people know that the only blemish on Newton's theory at the turn of uh, the 20th century was that it couldn't quite correctly explain the precession of the perihelion of Mercury. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the amount is, I think it's 43 seconds of arc per century. Tiny, tiny. That was its only blemish. Who would have thunk that the theory that uh, would ultimately explain that would completely, you know, be different than, than Newton's theory? So Newton's theory starts with absolute space and time, and the theory that replaces it says, ah, space and time are flexible. Right. And so you never know you know, which thread, which nasty little small problem actually is going to uh, lead to uh, tearing down the current mm -hmm. tapestry mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or unraveling mm -hmm. it. And I, I'm going to try my own amateur explanation of what you just said. There, there's an oddity uh, in the observed orbit of, of Mercury around the sun that really didn't make sense in Newtonian terms, but when Einstein said, well, massive objects actually warp space, uh, the sun warps space, and light traveling from Mercury is actually bent when Mercury is sort of on the opposite side of the sun from us, and that, that accounts for this discrepancy. He, he explained it. He did, and it's a tiny, tiny discrepancy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to throw away a theory that had been so successful for 200 years, so you never know what little detail. In science, I think probably uh, you, you appreciate this, and I hope many of your listeners do, is that we can never approve a theory as correct. We can only disprove theories. Mm -hmm. And so a theory is only as good as its last prediction. And so uh, Newton's theory couldn't account for that tiny, tiny uh, discrepancy.
Well, uh, we're getting near the end of our time, but uh, in the remaining minutes, I'd like to talk about some crazy ideas. You're given a lecture entitled Before the Big Bang. And those of us who've you know, read the popular accounts of the, of the Big Bang, of the early, um, and I'm going to put early in quotes, because we really, from what I understand, we really don't know how old the universe is. We do know, or we think we know, that 13.7 billion years ago, it underwent this you know, massive inflation. Before that, it was really tiny, super dense, super hot. But at that point, our understanding of physics, uh, including general relativity and, and some other uh, principles, really breaks down, and we can't say much else. Beyond that point, before the universe inflated, all is mystery. That's what I've always heard. But you're talking about, you know, peeling back the veil of mystery and going back even further in time? Yeah, and the, uh, you know, sort of everything we've been talking about falls under the uh, rubric of the Big Bang Theory, and not the TV show, but the scientific theory. <laughs> and um, it's, it's an extraordinarily successful theory, and it's a bit of a bait-and-switch, because um, the theory, you know, everything we've talked about has to do with events after the Big Bang. We didn't even mention the Big Bang event itself. Right. And... And, uh, in fact, there's sort of an interesting story that goes with that. The person who came up with the name for the theory, the Big Bang Theory, was Fred Hoyle, who was pushing his own theory, the steady state theory, and he called it the Big Bang Theory. um, To make fun uh, of it. To be nasty, to make fun of it, because uh, Einstein's Big Bang Theory starts with the singular creation of matter, matter, energy, space, and time. And uh, so for years, um, you know, that, the question, what happened before the Big Bang, what caused the Big Bang, or all the variations, really, I think most of us would have said, that's, that's just, we can't formulate that question scientifically. Right. And what's exciting now is um, we can now formulate that into a science question, and we have some ideas about it. How, how and, can we do that when when general relativity doesn't even make sense at these you know super high densities when the universe was extremely compact? How can we we talk about it when our own tools don't even work? So um, uh, I didn't say we had uh, <laughs> ideas that we are uh, uh, think are close to being the right answer. In fact, one of the things I'll say in my lecture, uh, the ideas I present, uh, I think they're all wrong. But I, I think just the, to be able to talk about it. So uh, we think we have a candidate for replacing Einstein's uh, theory, and that's uh, string theory. And uh, that would solve that problem of general relativity uh, being uh, uh, unreliable at the moment of the Big Bang. And then also um, we, we have some general principles that we think uh, are pretty good inflation is one of them, that might allow us to guess the right answer. Uh-huh. Are you down with, with string theory then? Because there are many doubters at this point, and one of the complaints is that it makes no verifiable predictions. Another complaint is that it allows for so many alternative interpretations that uh, knowing which string theory to apply is anybody's guess, right? So I'm more agnostic. What, what I do believe um, is that uh, this collection of ideas kind of reminds me of Prince? This collection of ideas that used to be referred to as string theory are very, very powerful. They're just absolutely extraordinarily powerful. Ed Witten, uh, the uh, you know the guru, uh, uh, the, the oracle of the Institute for Advanced Study, has said that maybe string theory is a theory or mathematics of the 23rd century that was accidentally discovered in the 20th century. (laughs) And that's why we're having so much trouble getting our heads around it. But there's no question it's very, very powerful mathematics. And the history of physics is that uh, the language of physics is mathematics. And when we have advances in mathematics, when we apply new techniques of mathematics uh, to the universe, we make advances. And so... uh, I think these ideas are definitely worth looking at. And some ideas, I mean, I, you know, just to tickle your fancy here a little bit, uh, I'm a big believer that, uh, you know, wrong papers can be more important than right papers. 
And, uh, you know, uh, Wolfgang Pauli had his ultimate insult was to say <laughs> your paper wasn't even wrong. That's right. Yeah. Meaning that uh, it didn't even provide enough substance to uh, to disprove. Well, I think what he was really saying, although, uh, was that it was trivially right. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Whereas, I'll, gi- I'll give you an example of, of two very important wrong papers. Gamow's paper on the hot Big Bang, where he said that the Big Bang could have been hot, um, there's not a right equation in it. <laughs> and it changed the course of science. Uh, Andre Linde wrote one of the original papers on inflation. And again, uh, the equations were not right, but the idea change the course of cosmology. And so you never get it right. Well, you rarely get it right the first time. And uh, so often papers that have big ideas in them, you know, don't get all the details uh, right, but point you in a new direction. Mm -hmm. And so that could be the case with string theory. And so some of the ideas from string theory uh, allow us to think about this question of the Big Bang differently. And so all I'm going to claim, all I claim, is that uh, we can now address this question scientifically. I mean, we're at the very, very beginning. And, you know, 200 years from now, people will probably laugh at what we've done as being overly simplistic. But this question of, uh, you know, that everybody wants to know when you tell them about the Big Bang, the question they want to know is, what caused the Big Bang? What came before the Big Bang? It's now a question that we can start speculating about. You know, it, it's sort of a childlike question, though, because, uh, you know, once they've asked what happened before the Big Bang, they're just going to turn around and ask you what happened before that and before that and before that. They're never going to let you rest, Michael. Actually, well, we'll <laughs> see what happens on Monday night, because the these big, big questions, the the, the before the Big Bang, the, the, the three ideas I'm going to discuss, which I'm not going to discuss with you, you want to even hint what they are? No, nah, I'm not going to give you a hint. Oh. Really put you back on your heels. Okay. So, uh, it, you know, you get dazzled. Gee, I never thought about the question that way. Do any of them involve eternal inflation? Yeah, I think I, so you, I knew you were going to. I'm easy. <laughs> but, you know, if our Big Bang was a burst of inflation and it, it really wasn't the, you know, it was lowercase b, lowercase b, instead of being the Big Bang, it was one of many Big Bangs. If there are an infinite number of beginnings, was there ever a beginning? Right. So it just completely <laughs> rephrases uh, the question. Um, you know, in, in uh, this question about how galaxies formed, when I was uh, a young postdoc, the question was uh, isocurvature or adiabatic. Uh, I don't need to tell you what those words are, <laughs> but that was, you know, just tell us which of those is right. <laughs> And uh, the answer is neither. That was the wrong question. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so then it became hot or cold, and that was much closer. So we think it was cold, dark matter. But, you know, the most important thing is asking the question. Usually we ask the wrong question, and we find out after a while, and we rephrase the question. Science, it, it's very, very exciting. And I like to say cosmology is boomer bust science because the universe is vast and often just beyond the reach of, uh, you know, our ideas and our instruments. And we're in one of those boom periods where, where we are lurching forward and uh, we're able to ask these very, very heady questions and we might even get some answers. Physics has been so successful that now most of the, the big questions, or, or maybe maybe all of them, um, hinge on things at either vast, vast, vast distances or at tiny, tiny, tiny scales. Uh, things that are far, far away uh, or things that are super small. And finding out about those things is getting more and more difficult. I mean, finding out empirically, the instruments have to be so much more powerful, bigger telescopes, massive detectors underground, uh, huge particle accelerators, and obviously they're getting more expensive. Is there any worry that, you know, just gathering the data is becoming impossible or that you're being priced out of the market? Um, Science has always been hard. You know, you're always working at the limits of your capabilities, and, of course, we become more and more capable. Um, You know, scientists are children, Mm-hmm. We know what we want, and <laughs> you want really we, we don't expensive know what toys. our parents can afford, but we know what we want. Um, society has been very generous 
to this exploration of the very big and the very small. Uh, I think in part because uh, we're addressing uh, the questions that everyone can understand. You know, where did we come from? Where are we going? Uh, Are we alone in the universe? And, um, you know, there's a lot in the world that can really depress you. And one thing that uh, is guaranteed to uh, make you feel good about, uh, you know, humanity and that we're making progress is if you look at the Space Telescope, if you look at the Large Hadron Collider, uh, if you look at scientific instruments and say, my goodness, we built these things that allow us to see things that are, you know, a trillion times smaller than we can see with our eyes. And let's see, when when we look at the universe, we can probe distances that are a trillion times farther than we can see. Isn't it amazing? You know, we're not such a bad species after all. When we get together and uh, decide to do something together that doesn't involve beating each other up, we, we can do some really great things. We ought to do more of that. But but don't you sometimes envy a guy like Galileo who could just take a cheap little telescope and make major discoveries with it? Um. I don't know. That that would be an interesting conversation. Is uh, I think science was always hard. That people were always working at the limits uh, of what they could do, and uh, you know it was a simple instrument. Um, but you know, I had to polish the mirror, uh, or not? He didn't have mirrors. He had <laughs> lenses. Uh, lenses, and you know, you could you could barely make out the features you wanted to make out, and it took painstaking efforts, and I think we're always working at that limit. Uh, We're learning to work better together. We're building things of larger scale. When you look at the Large Hadron Collider, the the biggest and most uh, most expensive science experiment ever built, uh, it took roughly 10,000 people to build it. It cost roughly uh, $10 billion. It took 20 years. Um, So, uh, you know, we're now harnessing, uh, you know, greater efforts, um, but we're still working at the limits that we can that we can do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks a lot, Michael. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. You're very welcome. Been fun. That was the cosmologist Michael Turner. He's a professor at the University of Chicago. I'm Robert Polly. This has been the Seventh Avenue Project. I'll be back next week. You can always check us out online at SeventhAvenueProject.com. Dark energy closes on me Wherever I go, whatever I see Dark energy closes on me So why can't I see what